Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done 530-something of them now. And um, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This uh, program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to express that appreciation by making a donation, there's a PayPal button on every page of batgap.com. My guests today are some dear friends, Zaya and Maurizio Benazzo. I've been seeing them for, how many SAN conferences have you done so far? 12 in the U.S., right? 12 years in the U.S., since 2009. Okay. Now it's going to be the 13th, it's right? going to be the 13th. All right. So then I've been oh, seeing yeah. you for 11 years because I missed the first one. As they just implied, they are the um, mother and father of the Science and Non-Duality Conference, the SAND Conference, which I've been attending for the last 11 years. First, a little bit about them. Zaya is a filmmaker from Bulgaria with degrees in engineering, environmental science, and film. For many years, she worked as an environmental activist in Holland and Bulgaria, and later produced and directed several award-winning documentaries in Europe and the United States. Maurizio grew up in Italy and in 1984 came to the United States on a 98-year-old sailing boat. He started working as an actor, model, and filmmaker, but his thirst for knowledge was only satisfied in 2001 upon encountering I Am That, the seminal work by Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, and while he was in India shooting the award-winning documentary Shortcut to Nirvana. Marito and Zaya merged their lifelong passions for science and mysticism when they met in 2007, and their first project together was filming the documentary Rays of the Absolute on the life and teachings of Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. This project sparked their next level of creation and collaboration, which, as we just mentioned, is the Science and Non-Duality Conference, which we'll be referring to as SAND, a global community inspired by the timeless wisdom traditions, informed by modern science, and grounded in direct experience. So, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick. I'm really happy to have this opportunity to talk to you because the only time I ever see you is at SAND, and everybody is so busy especially you, since you're running the conference, that we never really have a chance to talk, except maybe an occasional breakfast or something like that. And even then, it's kind of crazy around there. So much going Mm -hmm. on. So this will be fun. We'll really get into all kinds of interesting stuff. Yay. We definitely look forward forward to to the conversation with you, Rick, and the community. You've been in our satellite universe with Sand. You've been such a support. And, and presence, and presence mm-hmm. so so strongly in our, our community that is a pleasure to finally connect. Even though we have few people listening, we can freely have a conversation. Oh yeah, friend. yeah, yeah. I feel like part of the family. So maybe you could each answer this question separately. How did each of you first get interested in spirituality? Yeah, I know you're a good little Catholic boy. Exactly, yeah. I was a very good Catholic boy. <laughs> trying and, to be a good little uh, Catholic boy. Trying, <laughs> I failed dramatically. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember the age of pen finally, I always was interested in the big question and age of pen, I finally was able to stop doing the sign of the cross. And when I realized in the morning, Jesus didn't send the lightning bolt to kill me and I was still alive, I thought I was free. <laughs> and then uh, after that, I bumped into everything that came to Italy from the children of God to Zen to anything you can think of. TM, everything that appeared to Italy 
in the late 60, early 70, I bump into it. And then in my early 20, late teens, I got back to Jesus strongly. I tried to become a Catholic monk. They kicked me out after a week because I, <laughs> I was not a good Catholic boy. And so I was always in the search of the big question, always, always intrigued and, and desire, but I could never find any, any, any answer that was satisfactory fully. I found that, you know, something was not right in all of that. For me personally, it would never. And, um, and then uh, Nizargarata was the first person I was, human being, I was able to give me something that I could put my teeth in it and feel satisfied fully. Also, because there was the idea that I'm not having a ashram, not having a, there was no religion connected to it. There was no dogma somehow other than the, the pure teaching. Yeah, when you started reading the Sargadatta, did that inspire you to do some kind of practice? Did he advocate some kind of practice? Or was it just reading his book deeply and, and perhaps mm-hmm. repeatedly that became a practice for you? To me, the practice in some bizarre way has always been life. And I don't want to sound too... I don't remember a specific practice other than contemplation on the word and contemplation on my thought and understanding my action more and more in the light of what was the, um, the thought, you wish, you know, or, the, or the, the ambition of the, this sensation of, of oneness, you know, how, to, how to be what I was heard that I could be or should be, how to be in that moment somehow. And so you found like contemplating his thoughts and words to be transformational in some deep way. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It was like, whoa, mind-blowing. It gave me the sense of peace that I didn't know. I couldn't, I couldn't experience otherwise, the sense of, <sighs> yeah, yeah. It's a sensation that I had before, but sporadically. Maybe sometime, I remember one day, probably 14, 15, that I was like doing somersault in the, mig- in the middle of a hill on top of my hometown, crying, looking at the beauty of the universe and the birds. I mean, this mystical outburst, I had them, but they were never connected to a specific, uh, there was no continuum, there was no logic. They were coming and going. And with Nizagata, I was able to see and understand, put my mind at ease in understanding what those experience could be and why. Mm-hmm. It makes any sense. Yeah, it does. How about you, Zaya? Well, I, I was born in a communist country, so spirituality was not something that was practiced or that one could have easy access to. I was one of those kids that was driving my parents crazy since I was four. I was like obsessed with the question, where do we come from? Why we are here? And my parents often will be losing patience. (laughs) I have no idea. And thank God they were not religious. So uh, they kind of left it quite open, the answers. But I was relentless in my questions. So I was trying to get into any spiritual book I could. In Bulgarian, there was almost nothing. So I was reading in Russian. So the first uh, access to spirituality was through books in Russian. And mostly philosophers and Balvatska, like the esoteric teachings of um, Balvatsky, Madame of the Balvatsky. East. Yeah. 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 And then uh, the book that really kind of woke me deep, in a deep way was Castaneda. The books of Castaneda were translated in Bulgarian. 
And that's what actually eventually brought me to the States. I came here to study with Castaneda and with the women. Did you actually meet them and study with them? I did. Yeah. And uh, that was about 10 years, that period in which I was very deeply committed to the path. There was a specific path. There was a specific practices that I was doing most of my days. Just out of curiosity, yeah. did yeah. you conclude that Castaneda made most of that up, or do you feel like it was pretty um, genuine what he wrote? Ah, this question is so hard. To me, it was genuine. It was genuine, yes. But what I saw through, like at the end of the path, there I saw all the shadow, all the unresolved, unmet human messiness that was there as well, deeply covered in the spiritual structure that he created together with the women and the whole organization. There was so much of that. That's a familiar story. Uh, so very familiar <laughs> story that it took years to actually fully unravel what happened. But the thing is that I was still quite young and I came across I am death. And the moment I got to the book and I started reading, it was like peeling the layers of spiritual dogma, understanding that I I have accumulated over these 10 years just slowly became obsolete and it made no sense. And I need to mention a human being that really helped me in that process was Stephen Volinsky. Yep. Oh, yeah. uh, at that phase, when I met Maurizio, I also met Stephen, and we did the journey with Stephen to India. And for me, it was like a crash course on Advaita Vedanta, being with Stephen. Like, I had so many questions. Like, we spent hours every day. He was just deconstructing, dismantling anything I have constructed in terms of spiritual understanding. Has he ever um, spoken at Sand? He spoke at the first, the first year. He opened year, the first year. First year, yeah. He is not the guy for He proud, was a, yeah. a big part of us starting Sand. Yeah, absolutely. The first year. Absolutely. Yeah, I've invited him to be on BatGap, but it was sort of like, eh, I don't do that kind of thing. You know, you just you prefer to just communicate through words and not have a, a video presence, it seems. Yeah. yeah. For, it's interesting, though, isn't it, how... I don't know, you've probably run into this a lot, I have, that um, people who end up like us, you know, just sort of fascinated with all this kind of stuff, often had a fascination from an early age. It's kind of like we were wired that way from the start. Yeah, yeah. I always knew there must be more to life. There must be more than what we've been taught in school, than what, what society is revealing us, what is teaching, yeah. Yeah. And I did have also my own out-of-body experiences and things like this that did inform through my body, really, what the, the masters have been describing. For me, it didn't really hit me till I was about 17. And I you know, found uh, LSD and Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert's book and stuff like that. And then, oh, yeah, wow, enlightenment. That's what it's all about. That's what I'm supposed to do. But before that, it was pretty muddled. I didn't really have, I, I don't think I was as clear a seeker as you guys were in the earlier years. To me, I connected in the last few years, I'm starting to connect it to trauma in a way, because the, the, the death of my mom when I was seven was such a traumatic event that I had to find an answer somewhere else 
than what is, because what is was too painful and unexplicable. It made no sense. Dude, up there, what the f- I mean, come on, <laughs> what's the story here? There yeah. has to be something, you, you probably are not in charge because you cannot do this, this kind of thing. And, and then therefore starting to go slowly off the hook, but then there must be an answer, so continue searching. So I, I'm starting to see a connection there in those, between those, my major trauma of life and my desire to go deeper and find more answers. I don't know if it's a pattern for everybody, I don't want to say that. But uh, I'll be curious to explore that. I was just listening to some podcast and some, I forget who it was. It might have been one of Tim Freak's episodes. Some guy was talking about the diseases or, of despair or deaths of despair where people try to blot it all out. You know, they, they take alcohol or opioids or they overeat, you know, grotesquely and so on because the life is painful and they just want to dull it out. But I think one thing I realized kind of early on was that the more you try to dull it out and suppress it, the more you're going to have to deal with later. So you better get going on the project of purifying and clarifying and you know moving upward rather than trying to trying to suppress it. Yeah, and for many of us, actually, on the spiritual path, we have used spirituality to do this to suppress that too. Yeah, and to use spiritual concepts and teachings and philosophies to disconnect mm-hmm. from our own being and the body. And mm-hmm. so actually this is what we have been seeing more and more, but we will get to that in our journey with Sam, that this is where collectively actually we struggled. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you take, about that, but maybe before we get into yeah. that, we'll, we'll touch a couple more points. Tell us the story of how you met. That's kind of a sweet story. Yeah, well, it depends who you ask. It's a sweet story. <laughs> But I didn't mean that. It's a sweet story in both cases. It depends on how you ask is how we met. Because I have my version that is very oh, well, we hear both versions. Your version. <laughs> <laughs> right? We always, it's so beautiful. We agree. Well, most of it. Incidentally, for, for those listening, me, this is a little sample of what Sand is like. It's kind of a okay. Abbott and Costello team where Zaya <laughs> plays the straight man and, and Maurizio <laughs> is Costello. <you> know? <laughs> so, who's on first? <laughs> it's our life, really. It's the life we have. That's why we are perfect for each other in so many, 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 many ways. You know, asked, right? The forum. You know, the sure, forum. Sure, we're in Earhart. So we met at the forum. Oh, okay. We were both uh, in the process of uh, a separation from our previous uh, partners. And uh, I saw her. I totally liked her. I remember she was sitting in front of me. And I was. And then uh, when she was exiting the room, I sneaked my card and I used one of my favorite ones. <laughs> I basically told her, oh, I have a sweater exactly like that, which was the case. But and a totally hippie, beautiful, pointy, yummy hoodie. I said, I really had one like that. And she looked at me and said, uh-huh. That's she nice. <laughs> but she took the card. I said, okay, whatever. And then a few days later, she apparently looked at the card. And my company was called 1980 Films. And I was making a movie with Steven Bolinsky on Nizagalata Maraj. So they're all on, online clips and stuff on YouTube. And so we made this movie. And she said, oh, my God, you do a movie about, about Nizagalata? And I said, yeah, I'm going to India in a few weeks to make another movie, this Ray of the Absolute. And she said, well, I'm a camera person. I said, well, I need one. <laughs> and uh, was our, basically our first serious date was going to India to shoot this movie, Rays of the Absolute, which you can find on YouTube for free. 
Okay, maybe I'll link to it from your BatCat page so people can see it if they like. It's a beautiful movie because we interviewed the translators of Nisargadatta, the unsung heroes of the story, basically. Okay, so then, Zaya, what's your perspective on this story? (laughs) It's pretty close. I really liked Maurizio right away, and I felt like a little bit like, oh, he's such a cool guy. Like, why would he love me? Why would he like me? the low self-esteem kind of response. And I felt like, I don't know if there's enough depth there for me. <laughs> She's still wondering, by the way. I still wonder. She's still wondering, by the way. But this is the beauty, the dance. <laughs> yeah. But when we really connected and we talked about Nisarkadata, it was really, we met right there where we were both at the same place in our spiritual path, which created, I think, immediately a, a very strong bond. And... We both have creative, passionate hearts that we just met in that creative energy. The rest actually didn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you had a destiny to fulfill in more ways than one. All right. So let's inch along towards the birth of the Science and Non-Duality Conference. How did that idea come up? So basically coming back from India, literally coming back from India, we had a dinner uh, with a friend at the Stephen Bolinsky workshop. One evening, it was my birthday. We had a dinner with, his, with Fred, our friend, Fred, Uncle Fred. And uh, he said, well, why don't you guys make a conference about science and spirituality? Because one of the translators of Nisargadatta in the movie said that one day Nisargadatta would have would said, one day said, what I'm teaching is not spirituality. What I teach is science. One day, scientists will come and understand all this. And that sentence struck us, you know, because we both had the extreme desire to understand also science. We were both hanging around a lot of science gatherings and books and situation. Let's take so a minute to um, define and contrast science and spirituality, and then you can continue your story. How do you understand Nisargadatta's statement that what he was teaching yeah. is science? I can just put one little thing. It says, fluid come together and sense of self appears. The sense of I appears. The sense of I. Mm-hmm. And what he comes was together? referring what? like fluids. sense of se- fluids. fluids. You know, like milk and orange juice a, and fluids. He didn't have a sophisticated language. He was a biddy maker. So he was using very simple Terminology. peasants language. Yeah. yeah. So he says, and the sense of I appears. Basically what neuroscience is about. In the brain, the fluids in the brain. Ah, in the brain, I see. Around, so we are a mechanical, somehow, in an interesting way, we are a mechanical. He was describing, let's say, black holes and things like this without even having the concepts. But he would point to scientific concepts in his teaching that were just emerging spontaneously. And funnily enough, we heard that he was sending his disciple, if you wish, the people who came to him to study, he will send half of them standing on the spiritual path and half of them that you become a quantum physicist, you become a neuroscientist. He was sending people to... to or a bhakta. So he yeah. would, if someone comes, usually Westerners, they're very rigorous, they're very much in their heads, he would give them the, the jnani, the knowledge path. So he would explain, he would talk to them for hours. And then many of his Indian disciples, actually, they were bhaktas. They didn't care about understanding it intellectually, so he would just give them a mantra and say, you practice the mantra, and whatever it needs to be revealed, it will be revealed to you. 
And we met many of these people that to this day, they just do that, their mantra. And they don't need to understand. There's no need for inquiry or understanding or questioning. You just do the mantra. And the same, uh, we met a woman that she went on and became a quantum physicist and a professor. So her path was through academia to understand who she was and what's the nature of reality. So he was really meeting people where they, are, they were at. So you, from this, what I'm saying, you can understand the birth of science and duality. Right. There are so many doors. Choose the doors that, you know, if you're a hammer, you want a nail. If you're a screwdriver, you want a screw. I mean, <laughs> whatever, whatever which kind of tool your brain requires to take you to the next mm-hmm. level, to the next layer, take it. Science and duality, that's why it has all this variety of angles and options for, for that. Yeah, Nisar Karata used to say, like, there is a key for each human being. Like, there is a key to unlock your door. Whatever that key is, use it. Find it and use it. And that was the idea with Send. Let's put some keys that we have used in our our own spiritual journey and has worked and see if more people resonate with those keys. That's how we started by putting the variety of teachers and scientists. At the beginning, it was mostly spiritual teachers and scientists together. And then later, we added the psychedelics, the psychology, more keys. As life got more complex, collectively, we needed more keys to meet life. Yeah, such a rich point, really. One that I think about a lot and I'm very interested in. In fact, at the 2015 SAND talk, I gave my whole talk about how science and spirituality are both cooperative, collaborative tools for understanding reality and how both contribute to the other, each contributes to the other, and neither alone can can be can present the full to, to, knowledge as fully as it needs to be presented or understood. Um, yeah, because knowledge is limited by itself, by its nature. Yeah. Another point is that the human nervous system is a great scientific instrument if we know how to use it properly. And it's actually much more sophisticated in many ways than the most sophisticated more than the Hubble Space Telescope or the Large Hadron Collider. It has capabilities that those instruments don't have if we know how to unlock those capabilities. And still, is nothing compared to the amount of absolute knowledge is way, way above. I mean, the absolute truth is way, way above any possible. We cannot get there through understanding. Through understanding, yeah. But that actually brings up a point I meant to ask you, which is that Ramana and Nisargadatta and all kinds of great sages like that did say that we can get there by being that, through that sort of recognizing itself through the instrumentality of, of our mind-body system. So in a sense, you can get to absolute truth, but not as something you can stand apart from and say, oh, there it is, absolute truth, only by sort of waking up to the fact that you are that ultimately. Okay, so the heart can only know the absolute truth of the heart. You will never know the absolute truth of the, of the lungs. We can never understand the absolute truth of a galaxy, of a bee. We can only be there as we are here. Therefore, we can understand our place in the absolute, but not pretend that we understand the absolute. We understand our point of view of the absolute, and we accept it, and we are that. And by that, we are the absolute. Do you want to add to that, Zaya? No, what I want to reflect is that I used to be very fascinated by conversations like this. 
and now I'm noticing I'm losing interest. Like something in me just goes like, <laughs> because it's way simpler and immediate than that. Like the access point. Yeah, we'll try um, to put words in onto something that it really has to be an experience. And words never do justice to any experience, like the taste of an apple. You know, you can't really do justice to it. Even experience is limited in time and space. And we're talking something beyond mm-hmm. experience, even. Or beyond experience that the senses could bring us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or awareness or senses or perception. I used to be obsessed with understanding and questioning and knowing and and now I'm starting to lose interest in that. I'm just watching it. I, I don't know what is it, but it's like part of the journey. I know this is just one more. I uh, think you can trust it. I fully trust that. Yeah. Just to wrap up this point, what I would say is that I've heard many scientists at Sand and elsewhere say this, that. If you sort of take anything in creation, you can analyze it down scientifically or whatever to the point where you arrive at its ground state or its ultimate reality. And you find that the ultimate reality of all the diversity is one unity or one non-dual field. You know, I think one can verify that experientially. We have the equipment through which to verify that. Of course. Yeah. And to me, what spirituality is or practice or anything is really how that gets revealed, lived in moment to moment. It's like where in each moment that kind of unity, how it's expressed through this organism. Absolutely. That's what I'm fascinated with. And that seems to be the evolution of sand itself, as well as probably our our own evolution, the three of us, is that I wouldn't say a shift, but a sort of an evolution or a maturation of the emphasis on that abstract on manifest field to how it plays out in relative life, how it's embodied or expressed or lived in day-to-day living. Because there have been all kinds of people who've claimed to have experienced that, but then when you look at their personal lives, it doesn't seem to be playing out as one might hope. And even that, like even deconstructing even this statement that we all have that, right? We all have aspects of us that have not been fully blessed by the realization of yeah. oneness. Or, and probably always and, will and have. How, and always will have, exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. exactly. And how are we with that and how we relate to that and how are we intimate with that? That's to me an endless fascinating practice, like again, moment to moment. How do I relate to those parts in myself? And then how do I, how I am when I see that in another human being? And you want to add anything here, Maritza? It's the same old dance to me of the realization, the sensation, the feeling of being one, of the interconnectedness of the universe and me part of it. And yet me part of it and me being it as an apparent, as a separate object. Because if I have a headache, you don't, necessarily. And yet, we are interconnected. We are all part of the same. I go back to the metaphor of the body. My organism is made of heart, lungs, skin, nails. You know, and all these parts are separate parts. A heart cell will reproduce, creates another heart cell. If the heart cells start to work in the lungs, I'm in trouble. Yeah. So there is an absolute that is comprised of Diversity doesn't negate 
uh, unity. Very good point. Exactly. Important point. Yep. It's the combination of the two, the balance of the two. The dance we dance is the dance of the this feeling, understanding of oneness, and also this feeling and understanding of separateness, and find a balance between the two. To me, that's where the the sweet spot. Yep. And so often people try to absolutize one or the other particular perspective, like like the blind man arguing about the elephant. Think of it this way. Speaking of Nisargadatta, one of his sayings was that the ability to appreciate paradox and ambiguity is a sign of spiritual maturity. And um, if you think of creation itself with all of its polarities and diversities and apparent incompatible realities, yet somehow they are all contained comfortably within the totality of, of creation. So if God can do it, and if we aspire to that sort of realization, then perhaps we should get in the habit of doing it. And the paradox tends to be more in the mind again. Like yeah. there's not many paradoxes for the heart if you really go into the heart. Good point. The heart unites. And and I just want to say something you mentioned about using uh, absolute understanding or descriptions for relative uh, situation. That was actually a beautiful, I would say, collective realization that came at the last end at our yes. social justice panel. That um, actually, it I felt it kind of illuminated the room when Condon Mason actually said, "Let's pause for a moment." And see how we often we how we do that. Like we use those beautiful abstract concepts to a very relative situation. It doesn't work. Doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We need to meet the situation right there in its right. relativeness without bringing an uh, absolute concepts. And then we can see what's the truth of the moment if we are right there with what's been revealed. I must be in tune with you guys because yeah. that was the theme of my talk at this year's sand. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> the absolute and the relative. The... Yeah, and just how yeah. um, you know the ten the human tendency to to gravitate to a certain polar perspective and to sort of cling on to that to the exclusion of of its opposite, and how you know it, I was sort of saying it might be advisable you know, rather than grip on to one or the other, to expand our capacity to incorporate both, to incorporate all the, the diversities and polarities and ambiguities and all that stuff within one awareness, to be comfortable with that. With knowing and unknowing. Exactly. Those are two polarities right there. Certainty yeah. and uncertainty. And also to watch that often when we go to these absolute point of views and realizations, they, it comes with a certain sense of self-righteousness almost righteousness at times yeah. it can come that way like this is how it is reality is this yeah and, and, that, and, and there is like yeah. the, it comes with this kind of sense of like a little bit of I fundamentalism know it. Or and, 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 there, I, and there you have the separation immediately yeah. you created the separation when you with your belief of the truth you created the separation all of a sudden because i know you don't yeah yeah and, so and i Perhaps that's a symptom of some remnants of ego there, sort of uh, f filtering the knowledge. You know, I know yeah, this and you don't. And, and we always say that, that when we open sand, it's like you would not find the absolute truth here because we don't believe in the absolute truth. In 
absolutely true that this little mind and body mind can comprehend. We don't believe that it's possible, basically. Uh, and I know for some teachers, spiritual teachers, that yeah, this is really a very upsetting. Yeah. But we still, I feel like we, this is where we stand. Absolutely. Yeah. We well, you know, you made that movie. Find- you made a movie called Rays of the Absolute, right? right. So we're just rays. We can say we are the absolute ultimately, but as individuals, we're just rays. And it's not that the individual comprehends it. How can the whole ocean be squeezed into a drop? It's that it comprehends itself, and we're an instrument f- to facilitate that and then have it become a living reality, and a living, breathing reality. But it's not like the individual comprehends it. And, and many teachers say that. And many don't. And many don't. Variety is the spice of life. There's a question coming in about Nisargadatta. Jay from Victoria, British Columbia asks, Nisargadatta's guru said Nisargadatta was not given any siddhis, powers. In your movie about Nisargadatta, the translators said that he, Nisargadatta, would give people some kind of spiritual experiences, but later he stopped doing that. The translators said that these experiences were nothing special. Is there a difference between siddhis and these spiritual experiences that Nisargadatta gave people? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is what we learn from Mohan and Jayashri, that at the beginning when Nisargadatta started teaching, he was giving siddhis to some of his closest disciples. And then very quickly he he realized that actually he was doing disservice. They were to too them. attached, they become too to attached the to the experiences. They got distracted. They more. Yeah. So he stopped doing that and he's never done it afterwards. That's what we've heard. Adyashanti said something to me one time about how at a certain stage earlier on, he found he had a knack for just sort of waking people up just like that. But then he later realized that he perhaps was doing so prematurely you know, like maybe cracking a, an egg open before the chick is ready to peck its own way out. And so he stopped doing that. Nisargadatta was relentless about anything that might you might cling onto or think you understand or you know and has to be immediately dismantled. So even the experiences they were having, those disciples were um, needed to be dis- deconstructed because they were not serving yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah, and it's so easy to get attached to a, a city, to an ex- amazing experience of like, oh my God, it's so easy. And mm-hmm. in an immature state, as we all are, it's so tempting. It's like the, the devil tempting Jesus in the desert. You know, you know, there is always the temptation to stop on the path and stay at a certain level, you know. And yeah. Unless you get over it. You remain probably a superhero, but like the Joker. <laughs> I haven't I'm seen that movie. Good. But it's interesting because Nisargadatta, I never actually read I Am That cover to cover. I sort of dipped around in it and obviously talked to people who were with him, like Timothy Conway and others. But I get the impression that he spoke with a certain degree of authority. He was quite the master. So how do you juxtapose or how do you reconcile? Was he assertive? Was his authority, did it have a sort of a, absolute flavor to it or was it always tempered by at the same time uncertainty or humility of some sort that made it less absolute very good question you know i don't read i'm dead anymore i can't go back to that cannot go back no to these teachings i feel like 
they serve their I, purpose. Exactly. And maybe uh, partially is because what you're saying here. Yes, he was the man of his time. And that's how teachers were teaching at this time. He was very certain. But like I never doubted that he was coming from a place that was pure, fierce, selfless. He was penetrated, if I can say, by truth. Like I, I don't question that. I'm sure there was a shadow there as well, as any human being. <laughs> He had his own, but he, you know, he was in a culture that emotions do not exist, feelings, any psychology was not part of this time and culture. So none of that was part of the teachings or other inquiry. I think sand is a reflection of this. And I think bad gap also is. And um, I think our way of thinking is, but it's that everybody is a, an instrument of the divine, we could say, and all these different teachers and everything, they serve a certain function. And maybe even teachers that end up disillusioning people because of their behavior or something, maybe that function is legitimate in the big picture of things. But no one teacher serves all functions for everybody. Absolutely. Exactly. And a different stage, a different time. I mean, when Zaya said, I'm not reading, I'm not reading, I am that many years, but I'm not saying, oh, I, I, now I'm better, I'm above. Oh, you haven't even started. So there is no linear path of understanding. Mm-hmm. The finger that points to the moon that is attracted to you and it points to them, that's the finger you should follow. And sometimes you will look at the finger and sometimes you will finally look at the moon. We are doing the best we can. I mean, we all do, as I said, you know, we are all on, the, on this path of growth. There is no... And we all hold the longing. I think it's quite unconscious that there is one person there that knows it all, right. can deliver it, can give us the truth. This is kind of the unmet father figure that many of us project on our spiritual teachers. And I really respect teachers who would say, I don't know. This is not something I have expertise in. Or, or they would say to the student, I think you need to go and get help about this aspect that I cannot help you. That's very humbling when I see that. When I see a teacher saying, I don't know, it just melts my heart. I was like, okay, I can trust that. And yet sometimes people, as the need also to as Rick was saying, to bump into teacher. Right. I mean, in the abusive situation, I mean, as an extreme case, could be a trigger to speed up the, the process no for, people, for people to get over it. Good, good, good. Everything is perfect as it is at the end of the day. Yeah, good point. <laughs> and and I sort of have, I always have this feeling that the universe has this evolutionary agenda and that all is, well and, all is well and wisely put. And I mean, you know, I was born to parents who had fought in World War II, and my father had alcohol. He was an alcoholic, and and my mother ended up trying to commit suicide and ending up in, you know, mental hospitals. So it was not a real smooth ride when I was a kid. But you know, I chose that life. I feel, from my perspective, I, I feel like okay, I, I that it was karmically appropriate for me to be born under those circumstances and to go through all that. And hey, I I once said to my mother, actually, when she had gotten a lot better and was, you know, she was doing pretty well meditating and stuff. And and I said, you know, mom, don't ever worry about the way you raised me because I'm real happy with with the way things are turning out. So you must have done the right thing. (laughs) That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom. You know, points like the one I just made 
a point like that could turn into a two-hour philosophical conversation. So we just have to sort of roll past those things. And if people listening say, I don't agree with that, then don't worry about it. There's a discussion group on Facebook where you can hash this out if you like it. And also, and also we don't agree as well. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> I would not agree with me two years ago. I will not agree with me two years from now, most likely. Good point. And that's the limitation of this form of communication, right? We kind of lock each other in this in positions or statements that are, they're morphing, they evolve, they change. Yeah, yeah. It's good to hold any conversation lightly, that this is what is revealed in this moment, but in the next moment, it will have a different yeah. and, and that's flavor. The, and the way of sand. There is no absolute truth. We are interested in the question. We're interested in the question. We're interested in the conversation. And we are interested in having a quote-unquote good time. And I don't mean a good time like getting all drunk and stupid. <laughs> a good time meaning having fulfilling conversation with non-dogmatic people that they have their point of view. They are not afraid of sharing it. They are not afraid to listen. And they're not afraid to, you know, this is the essence of sin for us, how we see it. You know, a bunch of mature, intelligent people, enough mature and enough intelligent people that are able to gather together Aside from their diversity, exploring, you know, the big question that, you know, and then, you know, have a dance, you know. Yeah, I think that's the essence of both science and spirituality at their best. But you know, not at their best, you have sort of materialists who won't listen to Dean Radin or because what he's saying couldn't possibly be true, so they're not even going to look at it. And, you know, you have religious people who won't. Well, church and in Galileo's day wouldn't look through the telescope because it couldn't possibly be true. So, you know, people get into these sort of narrow mindsets, but you don't see that at the end. We'll see it, but we, we all have a narrow mindset. <laughs> but at least we are aware that we have a narrow yeah. mindset. That's the bottom line. <laughs> I'm not saying, oh, no, we are so open. I understand that bullshit. I have no clue. Yeah. I have my narrow mindset, but I listen to your narrow mindset, aware of my narrow mindset, and appreciating your narrow mindset until it pisses me off too much, and then I'll tell you it pisses me off, and I move. But not, uh, um, you know, or upset, whatever. But, um, you know, let's keep it lightly. That's what I'm saying. Let's yeah, keep it lightly. Absolutely. Like in an old village in Italy when I grew up, there is the fascists and the communists. They fight all day, and in the evening they are in the bar playing card and having a drink. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, we're gonna, we were born, we're going to die. You get sick, I get sick, I'm going to help you, you're going to help me. And yes, somebody likes chicken, somebody likes uh, salmon, you know. At the end of the day, we are here in the same boat and try to make, to make sense of this absolute mystery. One thought that comes to mind in, in, at this phase of our conversation is that despite all this talk of openness and flexibility and not locking into particular perspectives, at the same time, there's a danger, I think, sometimes of extreme relativism where there is no universal truth or laws of nature or anything else. It's all a fabrication of however we happen to be perceiving it. I think that's very anthropocentric, if that's the right word. Gravity has been functioning presumably the same way for 13.8 billion years. It didn't change function when Sir Isaac Newton came along. And the same could be said of all kinds of laws of nature. So nature itself has a certain reality to it, which human beings only grasp a tiny portion of. But nature is not subservient to humans in terms of what it is or how it functions. It's the other way around. We're subservient and trying to sort of rise to the level of understanding that would really injustice to what actually is. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And again, the last piece of what SEND is about, we invite people that we stay close to our own direct personal experience, which is really all we have. And again, unfortunately, in spirituality, but also in our society, that notion towards disembodiment has been so, in the Western culture, I would say, so prevalent. And it's getting more and more, like, it's really sad to see the young generation. I mean, they spend seven to eight hours disconnected from their bodies in front of the computers and screens, and we all do that. And humanity, we've done it in every phase of life, uh, in every stage we have done it in different ways. But this particular time, I think, is really alarmingly, we are alarmingly disconnected from our bodies. And what is underneath that is all the things we don't want to meet, all the things we don't want to feel, it's usually below the destruction. Anyway, where I'm leading with this is I just want to mention a project we've been working with. I don't know if you're familiar with Gabor Mate, with his work. So in the past two years, we have been working on a documentary about trauma and addiction. And this is one of the things that in the collective field, we came five years ago, I would say, at SEND to realize that there's no way we can really progress on a spiritual path unless we meet our trauma, shadow, unconscious, whatever you want to call it. This is really where maturation happens in meeting, in creating intimacy. I'm not talking even about healing trauma or resolving because that's a whole different conversation. But a big part of our spiritual work is meeting trauma that we have carried in our bodies, I would say, for generations. And now we have the luxury, the privilege to actually become aware, to feel it, to meet it. And we have the tools to do that. So, Yeah, I interviewed Julie Brown Yao last October when, when we were out there. Give us an example or two of spirituality as a means of spiritual bypassing, which tries to ignore or suppress trauma, and how, how a more mature spirituality would, would look, which doesn't do that. Well, I would say for us, how we saw it is how it played in our personal relationship. Mm-hmm. Like the first five years of our marriage was perfect because we were residing in the absolute. It was all perfect. <laughs> we were not the doers. You know, there was nothing Our personal. house caught fire when we just bought this house. It caught fire. We remember we we're sitting in the garden looking at it. It's only an illusion. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> but we really mean it from the heart. I'm not saying in a bizarre way. We were not that touched, if yeah. you wish, even though we were touched, but we were observing it from a, from a higher angle. Yes, sir. Yeah. So we were not touching some deep feelings within us that gradually life, you know, the intelligence of life provides opportunities to wake up. So as we started touching some of those deeper grounds within us, it became, the relationship became super uncomfortable. Like we had to meet individually and as a couple, so much shadow, so much unconscious material that I would say a big chunk of our spiritual journey has been in the past several years in really meeting these places that we were very comfortable with our spiritual 
concepts of I'm not the doer, I'm not choosing this, it's just happening, and yeah, okay, it's not maybe what I want, but this is what's perfect. given here, it's all perfect. It's all um, perfect. There's a truth in that, and there's a, perhaps a level of experience or stage of experience in which that is one's actual living experience, but if that makes one detached from or disinterested in or passive toward so-called real-world realities, then I think there is a spiritual bypassing taking place. I mean, for instance, the in Gita, Arjuna says, oh, I want to fight this battle, and you know, it doesn't matter what happens, and so on. And Krishna eventually says, well, you have to fight the battle, and actually you're not the doer, but you have to engage in action with full force and full intention. And, uh, you know, you can't hide out in a sense of non-doership, be established in that, yes, but perform action dynamically. Well, I was an activist in my 20s, and I know that my activist work was fueled by my trauma. It was not fueled by my spiritual realization. So that's why I stepped out. And then I went to a period of a little bit of what you are describing. It's like, yeah, well, it is what it is. Why fight? Why try to change anything? And now I think also with Sand, uh, we're coming full circle where it's like, yes, we're not in charge. And there is the action that each moment calls for. And am I available for that action? Not because I know what needs to happen, but because I'm available for life to move through me in a way that the situation is calling in that moment, which I might not even have a conceptual understanding or grasp of what is really calling here. But you make yourself available and you end up probably doing what needs to be done. Afterwards, you think, how did I know to do that? Yeah. Yeah. And like how I am available is through really being intimately connected to uh, what is revealed in my body, in my, in my heart, in my heart. So you mentioned that, you know, for the past five years or something, you've been dealing with or processing a lot of trauma, which had been repressed or buried or ignored. Um, and it's been, a little bit harder work than it was during the first five years where you're just hanging out in this detached place. So how have you been doing that? Have you been engaged in therapy? Have you been, you know, just sitting down eye to eye and, and hashing things out for hours? And then how, how do you deal with this? What's your process? Yeah. All of it, I would say. We have a, we've been doing therapy. Some great have, fights. Uh-huh. Some serious some great fights. fights. Uh, unraveling, allowing quite a bit of the suppressed emotions to come up, uh, yeah. some somatic experiencing. Um, yeah, all Everything of it. you can actually. think of. Yeah. Again, it's unnecessary to say how because everybody has their own path. True, but people path, hear you say that yeah. and they might think, hmm, I should probably do that. What should I do? No? Well, listen to your heart first. <laughs> and then, yeah, no, for and us, then, yeah. I would say it has, therapy has therapy helped. helped. Um, but then again, it has to be the right therapy, I mean, yeah. on the other hand, because yeah. if you dwell for months talking about, you know, yeah, and your mom didn't like you. You know, finding the right balance, because once you go on this path, you can become so lost in processing and making yeah. it 
all psychological. So that's the that danger there as well. Yeah. So striking the right balance that yes, there is some inquiry, some understanding, some unraveling, and yet come back to the simplicity of the moment that everything we need is right here and it's available fully. There is no obstacle to the moment. So remembering to come back to the right. simplicity of the moment. So there's been a little bit of a dance, getting lost a little bit in processing and then coming back. No, it's simple. We yeah, don't need to understand years. all the trauma that happened for seven generations <laughs> before. It's kind of nice. My mind loves to go and dwell and my body feels some of that energetically. And then coming back here. I cannot uh, agree more. It's a dance. Again, what we said before is a dance between knowing that you are the absolute, you know, the present moment is absolutely perfect. Everything is perfect as it is. And everything is perfect because it's absolutely imperfect. The perfection comes from, there's this beautiful story of the actual American Indian that they make the most amazingly beautiful pottery. It takes years to build the absolute pottery that is perfect. In the moment it's done, the teacher scratches scratch it. I said, because this has to be in this world. Perfection is not for this world. Come on. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting point you make about finding the balance between schlogging through all the trauma that one could possibly manage to excavate and it, the balance between that, which would be a real quagmire, or you know, just completely staying out of all that and ignoring it. It's probably a ongoing art to find that balance. You know, it's like, like riding a bicycle or something. You can't ignore balancing or you're going to crash. <laughs> but it does become perhaps a little bit more second nature after a while. Yeah, and again, my body would tell me when I have gone too far into processing. It's like ah. it's like the sensation of something is stuck, or like oh, I need to like shake out, you know, step out of this and come back to the aliveness in my body, developing that kind of somatic intelligence that we all have, but it's been kind of forgotten because of the ways we live and the ways we've been taught to inquire spiritually, also. Again, especially in the Advaita Vedanta tradition is very much about inquiry without the body. Like the body is not necessarily included. The tantric, the Kashmiri tradition is, is different. So yeah. again, at Sen, that's one thing we try to balance. Bring practices and modalities that do bring and develop more the intelligence of the body, of the heart. And I would like to mention something, one more if we reflect of what's happening in the collective, what I see in the field that that kind of dropping from the head to more of the heart, the felt sense, the presence in the heart has been happening. And that I think we are opening also to include more spiritual perspectives, at least in our community, more that are connected to the earth. So we are beginning to bring a little bit more indigenous wisdom, which has not been in the, ca the case for Sen before. But I feel collectively we are getting ready for that because we're reaching the limitation of understanding and exploring here. And the indigenous traditions, they have had for centuries their deep connection to the earth that we have lost. 
And I feel at this time, there is something that we all can learn from reconnected to the matter, to the matrix of life. There is something that is coming. And I, don't, I can't really formulate it, but it has to do with relationships. And that's what actually the indigenous people say that the crisis we are facing at the moment, we call it cl climate crisis, but they call it crisis in relationships. In relation, meaning relationship to ourselves, to each other, to the planet, to the cosmos. That's a conversation that, yeah. an exploration that has been emerging, I would say, yeah. in the sense. Because one danger to me, and I, I don't know if I'm jumping too far enough, and come, yeah. follow me if you can. <laughs> I'm thinking, my, my fear is that to go from the mind to the heart is not a direct path that can bring anywhere. It can go bizarro. To me, from the mind, we have to go to the ground, to the earth, and from there going to the heart. So the it sounds like a torus, and the heart is the center in which mm -hmm. the, the two connect. And it's from the heart that you can connect the mind and the earth. If you go from the mind to the heart, you're still missing a foundation. I know personally, I'm always in my mind. Advaita has been perfect for me because, oh my God, yeah, it makes so much, my mind is satisfied and I can stay there in the absolute bliss, but I'm floating six inches from the ground, right? I'm, I don't have that... That I never had that groundness, that that hurty, you know. <clears throat> and to me, I need that to be able to balance the high and the low, and find. And when I found the balance, then the heart can take over as the as the as the center of it, and the action can become more measured and more precise. I can feel more. Yeah, makes so. And I think also collectively, that's the movement we have been watching. We are moving up. Like we are, life is speeding up. Everything is faster and faster. We feel less. So we're really, we're limiting our experience to realms that are right here, that are disembodied, abstract. Mind-based, mind distracted. Like, with the technologies we spend our, yeah. Anyway, we yeah. went through that, yeah. but that's something. Yeah. So uh, we see at Zen bringing a little bit more of the earth wisdom traditions as well that is very much needed at this time. Like Bayo said this beautiful, beautiful sentence, yes. the time are urgent. If we need to slow down. <laughs> That's it. His ancestors. Yeah. I'm going to have Bayo on in a month or so. He said something very interesting a minute ago, Zaya, which was that it made me feel like something I already knew, but it reminded me that I've always felt that you have your fingers on the pulse of culture to a great extent. You both do, by virtue of who you are and by virtue of what you do. And when you first said that about moving from the mind to the heart, I wasn't sure whether you meant, you said the collective, I wasn't sure whether you meant the entire world or the contemporary spiritual community or the sand community or what. But maybe you could talk a little bit about your subjective experience of your intuitive sense of how things are moving in the world. Were you talking about the whole world? Or were you just talking about spiritual people? So, quote unquote. Yeah, I can't talk about the whole world. I would say our small community, spiritual community, ourselves, ourselves. First. But there is something about Western civilization that I don't have the 
expertise to really make big claims, but I do see it, like seeing how life is evolving here in the Silicon Valley, how the young generation relates. So based on, on these observations, I do see that tendency of disembodiment everywhere. That, that's what I mean, the collective. I, it's not the whole world because we were just in Mexico and I wouldn't say that people there are disembodied. They're more on their phones, but they're still you know, more in relationship to their community, to families, to nature. Yesterday, I went for a walk in San Francisco. I never go in the city. And there was this beautiful park. It was absolutely empty. There were benches and trees. Like, there was no human being. In a beautiful spring, summer, sunny day. In a beautiful day. day. And I was like, where are the humans? And then it was like, yeah, in the rat race. You know, there's no time for pausing, to enjoying, to smell the flowers. On the other hand, in Mexico, uh, two weeks ago, if you go in the middle of the day in the park, it's full of life, children and mothers. And, you know, it's like it's alive. So there's, there's that, that we have lost that kind of aliveness in our Western world. Well, something you said a little while ago reminded me that nature has its own way of resetting the balance and correcting things when they've gotten off track. and. It'll be interesting to see. It's interesting to see now, and it will continue to be interesting to see how things proceed. People living in a particular time, in a particular culture, never really can imagine what it's going to be like 100 years later. They always sort of think, well, this is normal. This is the way it is. This is probably the way it'll always be. But imagine you, you know, living in the 1860s and thinking that, and then suddenly transporting to now, and how shocked you would be at how much things have changed. People say the pace of change is accelerating and we're, we're kind of riding that wave as we go along. So it'll be interesting to see over the course of the rest of our lives how, how things evolve. But I, I definitely think that spirituality is going to be a big, big part of it. It's, it's really the missing ingredient for what ails the world. Yeah, yeah, I think that's our hope to stay sane because even the leaders in the Silicon Valley, they're saying, we can't even imagine what's going to be the future for our kids. It will be so different from what we are living today. And that I think you're right. Spirituality is the only hope for us. But then let's define the spirituality. Let's define that word. A spirituality that is able to give us enough strength, ability, knowledge, humbleness, uh, love, connection to solve the problem that we have. A spirituality that doesn't make us even more separate and perfect and disembodied. A spirituality that takes us back to the body, takes us back to our family, takes us back to our community, to the people, the less fortunate people, the abused, the, the oppressed and everything. And spirituality that help us fix this mess that we have been creating because uh, it's inevitable. I mean, I don't know, some people claim that the economy is doing super well, but as a society, yeah, I don't know. We have in our town of 50,000 people, we have 300 people homeless that are chased left and right, and nobody wants to find them a place to, to rest. I mean, how can we do that? And these people, we met in this movie we are doing, we met, there was this guy who has a job paid $35 per hour, full-time job. He cannot hold a home. It doesn't have enough money to pay for the rent because in San Jose, California, the rent are so high with a salary of $35 an hour, which is more than we make, it cannot hold the house. 
He lives in his car from six years. Wow. How can we let something like this happen in our society? The most, we are the most, what do we say? The most, oh, the economy is doing well. I don't care how the economy, <laughs> the economy is doing well like the Buddha, unless the last person is enlightened. My enlightenment means nothing. There is such a sense of inequality in the world. There is such a sense of oppression and abuse that is unnecessary. The medical system, and I don't want to talk about politics. I'm talking about spirituality. I'm talking about love. I'm talking simple understanding of the human nature. We are all on the same boat here. There is only one boat. And we are messing that boat too, this little round rock. We are messing that too. To me, that's spirituality to me. To me, that's spirituality. A spirituality, this famous love that we all preach, this famous love. And then like uh, Charles Eisenhower said, then we are able to step over a homeless person while we go to a yoga class <laughs> to on for an hour and a half. Come on. Without that, I feel more and more phony. I feel my spirituality is just simply an answer to my trauma because the spirituality helps me not to feel my pain. Spirituality is the same as watching Netflix, you know, to stay in front of, stay on Facebook all day. And I don't want that spirituality. I want something that makes me whole human and responsive and, and gives me the, the strength to be of service. Exactly. And my definition of spirituality would be summed up in two words, holistic development. That is that we have all these faculties and aspects of our makeup mind, heart, senses, all the different things. And spirituality is the full blossoming of all of them, not some of them to the exclusion of others or, you know, to ignoring others. And it's possible to make a lot of progress in one or another of these, what is it, Ken Wilber calls them lines of development. But you get more and more lopsided if you don't bring them all along and allow them all to blossom simultaneously. <laughs> and it's not always pretty. It's not pretty. It's not always gracious. Yeah. What, you know, what isn't? Spirituality can be yeah. messy, can be... You mean the process uh, of... of the it, process, yeah. 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 Yeah, and, yeah. And how we relate to, to that messiness, to that, that, that spirituality. Yeah. Can we still find love when we are lost or when we are caught that's, in rage? Yeah. Or, that's the real test. That's the real test. Yeah. You mentioned politics. I think it does relate to politics. And, and I hear the voices of a couple of politicians in my mind as you were saying that stuff about how well a certain percentage is doing compared to the, the vast majority and so on, like Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, it's working great for billionaires and billionaires and so on. And I don't want to enter again, just to be clear, I don't want to send is not politically oriented. We have our ideas. Sure. What we are saying, I mean, honestly, okay, let's face it. The most traumatized people in the world, we make sure they become our presidents and governors. I mean, because if you look, you, yeah, seriously, I yeah. mean, these people are really messed up. You'll see in our movie. When we Gabor, talk about Trump, yeah, Trump, Trump but Hillary even Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher and Obama and all of that. Well, be but because it's true. If you want that much power, sorry, you have to have had a serious trauma. You are in need to be in control. Something must have gone probably seriously I guess so. But could we imagine a society in which we have a sort of enlightened leader, so to speak, who isn't it for the sake of getting a hit on power, but actually is doing it as a as a, service. As a great service, you know, a mega service, kind of almost personal <laughs> sacrifice rather than a personal aggrandizement. 
beautiful. Yeah, which is what a true leader is about. Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Yeah, these are the leaders. Representing the people. I mean, I'm serving you. I'm of service. Is it public service, is it called, right? Is it called public service? So perhaps we'll delve into that, you know. I mean, and again, I'm not going to, it's not a political statement here. It's a, a, state, a statement about humanity and the pain we are going through. And, uh, and yeah, I, I don't want it to make it sound a political in one direction or the other. You know, you know but everything is interrelated and, and, you know, the kind of spirituality we have just defined touches all aspects of life. Politics, health, economics, science, diversity. everything. Diversity. Yeah. Diversity. Uh, diversity is a big conversation right now for us as well. Yeah. As you know, most of our spiritual communities are predominantly white. And that's something that we are also ascend, we're seeing, and we're meeting it finally. Um, yeah, you're doing but, a really good job. I mean, all kinds of people there. Uh, we're doing a small steps towards yeah. diversifying and how... Because it's not just bringing people of color, but also how are we together when we bring more diverse point of views that might not uh, might contradict some of our white challenge. Uh, spiritual privileged perspectives on life. So how are we going to be with that? This is a little bit some of the questions we are right now asking as an organization. When we bring diverse community, how can we create a container that is conductive to deeper conversations and healings and not creating more separation and otherness when we enter these kind of conversations? Especially you're aware in the States, the conversation around diversity and equity and white privilege, um, white fragility, they're huge. You know, and it's like we cannot just spiritually bypass them and say, oh, we're all one. What do you mean, uh, you know, mm. there's color? Or what do you mean you have a black body, right? So yeah, Under the again, skin, we are all one. This is we one of those color. very delicate, I think, um, grounds that we're walking on together right now. And this is our inquiry. Like, how do we allow for this inquiry to happen while we're still based and grounded in deep understanding and embodiment of our interconnectedness, and yet allow us to see all the places in which that might not be the case still, even in our spiritual community. I have interviewed a lot of the people who go to Sand, and I have interviewed just about everybody who contributed to your book, which we'll talk about in a minute. And both Black Gap and Sand have a certain theme, a certain orientation. We have had a certain understanding of, of spirituality. And what you're saying is you're trying to make it more diverse and inclusive, but not sort of throw people in there because they happen to be Black or gay or Native American or something, but somehow exactly. blend them in in a way that's relevant to what you've already built and allow what you've built to expand in a um, coherent way to incorporate them, right? Exactly. Yeah. There is a lot so, we have to learn yeah. from these voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They sing a different tone. And so then if you yeah. make a choir, you need all the vo- you need all the notes. And those notes are missing because we are we are tone deaf huh. to our own music. And wow. one thing about Sen is that whatever we would do, we would not do it because it's politically correct. Like yeah. that doesn't work for us. We have to kind of, it has to come from our own being or realization. Uh, so, yeah, and 
and for example, including bio last year uh -huh. at SEND, um, I think he created a beautiful ripple in the field just because he brought such a different perspective of yeah. spirituality and... Um, but it didn't seem out of place at all. At all. And it, it really did fit in. Um, in fact, we were, we were interested, trying to set up an interview with him, right? And we, we were suggesting a certain time of day. And he said, no, that's the time of day when I put the kids to bed. That's sacred time. We can't do it then. You know, so that was in itself like, well, that's, that's nice that he's saying that. First of all, the, the spirituality that got you guys going and, and me too came from brown people over in India mostly. And then contemporary spirituality that has been the sort of the main fuel of sand and bat gap as you said a minute ago, has been, you know, mostly white Westerners involved. Um, of course, there's a language, I think, they have to speak English more or less to participate. But why do you feel like the um, Native American and um, indigenous and, and um, you know, African-American and so on communities haven't just sort of naturally been a part of it in proportional, to a proportional degree? Any theories on that? The first thing that comes to mind to me as an ignorant human being is uh, disposable income. We have a huge mm -hmm. amount of disposable intellectual income in our brain that we can ponder those questions that you cannot ponder if you live in a reservation or if you have to work three jobs to send your kids to school or if you are afraid that the policeman stops, he's going to shoot you. Yeah, yeah, And it's really bland. This is the first because this... The luxury to have in this conversation, it is a luxury. It's a privilege. It's a yeah. privilege. That yeah. alone. Being able to read I am that in the seven or whatever. In the seven, it wasn't written. Being be able, as you said, at 17 to, to meet the teaching of Randas and Timothy Leary. I'm sorry. It's something you and I could do. While driving a car, in, nonetheless. <laughs> while driving a car, nonetheless. Exactly. So think about the people around you. 95% were white, most likely. More than that. So I think yeah, there may be two black kids in my high school, maybe. It was over 1,500 kids in the school. So that alone it, okay. it gives you, you know, Fairfield that, your answer. Yeah. And then, then these people like you became the teachers. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, that's one, one simple first thing that comes to mind very blandly. And I'm sure there's people way more intelligent was better. Yeah, well, uh, and also for Send, I mean, look where we are holding the event. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right? Nice hotel. It's a, it's a very nice hotel, privileged place. Yeah. Um, so that already pre-selects people. Again, this year we're, again, SEN does not turn anyone away for lack of funds. We, we have, can't say this out loud. Well, we're we are saying just it now. <laughs> I know, but no, we, have, we have a scholarship. We have never at the end turned of the day, anyone away. Everybody um, come in with a scholarship. But, but we now we are it. even thinking more. How can we include more diversity what are the ways in which? Well, we that thing you did with the young kids in the last couple of years was great. Having this, someone offered some sponsorship for a bunch of kids who were in their late teens, early twenties to come, and they had their own little subgroup. And saying that was a nice outreach. Maybe somebody could do that for the black community or the the Native American community or something like that. Yeah, but be careful how you do it because we have to be ready also as a community to receive that. Because if you do it as a gesture, oh, let's try to be 30% African-American, 27%, <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. It has to come from as a growth of the community and the, the understanding and the need has to, has to come from a why, from a strong why, why we are doing this. Sure. And not because, uh, oh, well, because it's politically correct. Um, we don't, those two characters on the side, we don't give a shit about politically correct. We tend to be 
has to be politically correct to our heart and to our strong belief, mm-hmm. then there is nothing that we are open to a, every cent to be the last one. And we often, often say this is the last cent, this is the last cent, because we are, we are not attached to the result. We are attached to the expression of it. We are attached to the evolution, as you said, to, to the impulse towards evolution. That's what, what inspires us and keep us going. Yeah. And it's not like a, a great money-making opportunity for you guys. <laughs> I can tell you that. You can say that out loud. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah we're actually putting yeah. the finances on our website, our P&L. So we're a non-profit. So anyway, that has, that's already public. Yeah. But we are making the extra step to put it on the website. So it's really right there. Yeah. Yeah. We only survive because no. of donation at the end of the day. Yeah. But the point we're making here, I think, is a, is a good one. We can move on in a minute. You know, the idea that spirituality, as we understand it, if our understanding of it is universal enough, should be exclusive to a certain subset of society, doesn't seem right. And it should somehow be made available to everyone. Society is going to have to undergo a great equalization in a way, because even with, you know, automation and, and things that are happening now, a lot of people, a lot of jobs that people depend upon are going to cease to exist and it just won't make sense for one percent of the population to have whatever it is 84 percent of the wealth or something uh, there's going to have to be a, some kind of distribution which ideally if, if it were done intelligently and compassionately could free up a lot of time for a lot of people to actually pursue spiritual and creative and artistic things they wouldn't have to work so many hours and just be exhausted but they could meditate or they could paint or whatever their dharma dictated. I just said this is going to have to happen. It's not necessarily going to happen, but ideally it should happen. What we are interested in is kind of bring shining light to the ways in which as a spiritual community, we might be unconscious or blind to the ways in which we might perpetuate otherness and we might not be uh, fully receptive to the diversity we are um, we are uh, inviting. I mean, there, there might be some of my spiritual beliefs actually creating obstacles to the diversity right. uh, to be present. And that's what I would like to bring as an inquiry in the field for and, all of us. And I want to add something, because yeah. I perceive that you were talking about spirituality as something we have. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's, it's not that people have to come to our spirituality. You know, let's make clear, spirituality in every culture, every human being, every, I'm sure Bruno, our chocolate lab dog, has his own form of spirituality. I'm saying spirituality is embedded in life. Every culture, every, they have their own. And it's not that, as you said, no, then they will come to us and we'll find the spirituality. They will understand. No, we have to go to them as well. There is no one spirituality. There is an expression of spirit through this embodied body in the interconnectedness of the universe, if you wish. So it's not that people come to us so they can understand and we are open to them so they can understand what we do. No, we are open to hear what they do and go to them. If it makes any sense, there was something you said about five minutes ago that gave me this thought and impulse, which I don't know. <laughs> no, sounds good. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. It's easy to sort of think of one's own 
understanding of things as you see it through your own lens, you know, right. and, and you think, Oh, those people are so different. They must not have it as it's insidious. There's this, there could be a subtle sort of arrogance of they don't get it as well as I get it because they don't express it the way I do or something. You really have to guard against that. Yeah. And until they speak my language, they will not get it. So calm and come to me and speak my language, then I know you're spiritual. <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of J.P. Sears. You got to bring J.P. Sears back. We're bringing oh, him. Back yeah. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah, there is a sense of linearity that we keep reaffirming. And again, some of the indigenous spiritual paths, they don't have that linearity. And that's, I think, also as we are facing more and more the climate crisis, we see that our approach to that that is based on cause and effect, uh, reducing CO2 emission is coming to a, we're seeing the limitations that that's not a solution. That's not the level at which we can resolve what we are facing. And we need a kind of multidimensional approach to life that we have lost touch with. I often say that all the problems in the world, including climate change, are just a symptom of the collective consciousness of all the people who make up the world. And if you try to change the problems without changing the collective consciousness, then you got it backwards. It has to be a shift in consciousness for these exactly. things to really resolve. And what we even point to is, again, coming to diversity and is the otherness that we have created, right. so that we see the otherness everywhere. And that's what creates the crisis of relationships. Because the white supremacy, the white culture, it's, it's very United States based. We should talk about the other and the oppressed, the abused, any person in a, in a less fortunate situation. With less. We, or we should being. talk about the, yeah, any, being. any being. Any being. We should go for the beingness and the otherness. Just this Instead morning, of, I was fantasizing. Some guy posted some silly thing about uh, how I should be run for president or something. I, I mean, yeah, just said, oh, dear God. But I was thinking, okay, if I were president, what would I do? I would ask my advisors, okay, where is all the suffering in the world? We have this trillion-dollar military budget. How about if we take all that money and channel it into saving the kids in Syria who are freezing to death or the people in you know, this country who are starving and so on? I mean, the United States would be so beloved if we actually not some kind of manifest destiny thing where we think we're, we're superior and we're going to impose anything on them, but relieve the suffering. That is everywhere. That would be such a sort of the world is my family kind of way of functioning. I don't. I know. mean, it's one way. It's one way. And it's again, it's not more looking to resolve the the problem. symptom. Yeah. Which is there is place for that. Absolutely, much better to start there than, than not <laughs> than give it to the military. I don't know if you would solve. To the it will be another. It will be another. Let me hand you a little. Yeah, well, that's the, that brings and, in the point of multidimensionality. You can't just deal with something on one level. Exactly. It's like right. watering the leaves of a tree instead exactly. of watering the root. Uh, another example is the movie we are doing. We went to a, a homeless shelter in San Jose where they have 120 rooms for people who have lived for most of their life in the streets for 20, 30 years on the street. Finally, they have a room, a shelter where they can live. They, they, they have a home first for the first ever. time in their life. And what happens when they have that? They actually fall apart because for the first time they can actually feel. So this is where um, Cause, cause the work then, begins. Yeah. Until then, 
It's survival tension. You know, where do I get the food? Am I safe? How do I I stay protected for 30 years of your life? Now you're a 45 years old woman who was homeless from the age of 15 and you got a wall and a door that you can lock. Now you're scared. Now you meet yourself. Now you meet yourself. Now your, your trauma, your pain, your fear, they come now because, oh, I'm safe here. And now that I'm safe, what do I do? You know? So that's where we're getting closer to the root, right? So when we start feel all the places in which we are stranger to ourselves or we have um, outcasted aspects of our being that are too painful to be with. Mm. That's why solitary confinement is such torture. Yeah. Or such blessing. To, yeah. It depends which practice. <laughs> depends. I mean, the, the, monks, the monks go in solitary confinement. Voluntarily, by yeah. Volunt- well, so they're ready to go. Yeah. yeah, even Vipassana is delightful because you get to bypass so much, <laughs> right? Um, do you want to talk about your book at all? Do you like doing that? We can just say that the book was a, a, an evolution of sand. It's compilation of teachings and uh, research and um, essays that kind of culminated in, in one book. And again, shows many different perspectives on where we are collectively in, in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, in time when it comes to what it means to be a human being. Yeah. On the Mystery of Being is the title. On the Mystery of Being, published by New Harbinger. Available at a bookstore near you. <laughs> um, yeah, it, their, main, their main themes of the book, you know, voices of contemporary spirituality, the rebirth of metaphysics, science embraces consciousness, uh, you know, the wonder of nature, the body as teacher, the art of, heart of intimacy, exploring the shadows, doorways to heaven. Do you want, are there any particular themes in the book that you feel like spending a few minutes talking about that um, particularly interest or inspire you or you think it would inspire the audience? Again, I see those as keys to open different doors and which key uh, depends on where we are on our journey. For someone, it could be that a psychedelic experience in this moment can unlock the door for them to move to the next level or to to see things that or experience aspect of themselves that they haven't had access before. For uh, other can be physics, quant- the analysis, the strict analysis of quantum physics or neuroscience on how the body work, how the brain work, how the absolute, how the more you look into a microscope, you find more and more nothingness. There is more empty space in this table than, uh, than in the universe, you know, for other people is the more the, the Yanni approach. I mean, each one of these chapters okay, is a good, uh, is a buffet, is a buffet of uh, knowledge and potential uh, triggering in a positive, hopefully in a positive way, uh, point to trigger new level of conversation and discussion with your own self or with others. So, and it provides pointers. If you pointers. choose one specific exploration, it gives you some pointers to uh, use to explore, let's say, um, relationship, intimacy. That's a beautiful right. doorway to knowing ourselves. And we've organized, in addition to send several events that focus only on, we call it in, uh, radiant intimacy, that bring aspects of 
sexuality and relationships, uh, intimacy, using those as a doorways to understand ourselves. Still in the framework, in the understanding of our interconnectedness, because that's another thing, you know? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with sexuality, sensuality, with eroticism, in the understanding of oneness? Like, how many spiritual p- teachers dare to bring the topic that of sex? In, in, right? It's a taboo. And why? <laughs> this is a big part of who we are as human beings. So why not go and explore? There's a lot of deep learning that can happen there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually they don't talk about it. They just do it behind the scenes. That's right. <laughs> That's, right. Yeah. That's right. Inappropriately. Yeah. 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 Huh. yeah. Well, that's... The suppression has led to that. Yeah. Right? That's the, the shadow. Hmm. So how? I haven't gotten to read too much of your book yet. I've read you know, a few chapters here and there and a, a bunch of your introductory statements to different chapters. One thing maybe we could touch upon for a minute is Robert Lanz's essay on rethinking the dumb random universe model of existence. Robert was, spoke at Sand a couple of years ago. And I think that's important because the scientific paradigm, the materialist paradigm, which tends to dominate science and thus dominate technology and and our society, is that the universe is sort of dumb and random and accidental. And that, as Alex Sakaris likes to say, that we're biological robots in a meaningless universe. And I think that that in itself is, to some extent, the root of the despair that causes people to commit suicide or take opioids or whatever, that the whole society is built on that edifice of the universe is this dumb material thing, random. And I'm separate. And I'm separate. And that's why I'm excited, like people like Mark Gober, for instance, who try to flip it upside down and say, no way, consciousness is the foundation and everything arises from that, which I think is basically a a fundamental theme of sand. And I think that just as the understanding of astronomy changed so much when we realized that the sun was the center of the solar system and not the earth, that everything made so much more sense. I think that if this paradigm shifts to understanding consciousness as fundamental and everything else is emergent from it, I think the ramifications for every aspect of society are going to be huge, gigantic. Most likely... (laughs) How do we live this moment to moment? Because the real change will come really when the rubber meets the road, right? Because we can conceptualize, we all understand we are one consciousness. It's all arising in consciousness and behave as a separate individual. So It's still part of the equation. It's not different. Again, we're going back to the absolute and the relative. Yes. And. It's always and. There is no... Yes. Oh, yeah. Because yes, even if we all, let's say, we all realize we are one consciousness, we all understand, I'm not sure if life will It's not change. just a matter of understanding, no. If we understood that, and if we acted accordingly, then educational systems would be geared around enabling people to have that as a living reality, an experiential reality, rather than just an understanding. And then people thus educated would go out and affect the world in a very different way than people do now. So it would ripple out, I think. Or the other way is to ripple from within out. More and more people are having this realization within ourselves Living life in this way becomes like contagious, like the virus, yeah, that's, right? Yeah, that's what will change that's the paradigm. What will change the paradigm. 
even if science still believes in some way that uh, consciousness emerges in the in the brain, if the reality is that we live from that place, we relate, we create, then life... Things will change. Has... The only thing we can really change is ourselves. Even though I'm the absolute, I'm not, I ain't going to change the absolute. <laughs> it, <laughs> I can only change It doesn't tend to, tend to change, yeah. <laughs> I tried for 13 years to change Zaya, so she agrees with me, but it doesn't work. <laughs> so I can only change myself. And by changing myself, I will yeah. create the change in the two of us. And blah, 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 blah. Not and even change. Change is not say. even not the right even word. Getting an awareness. And become intimate. Become intimate yeah, with, like with all of it. Verse. Recognizing my shadow, recognize me all my pain, my trauma, my shadow, and my beauty, and my all of it. And being aware of it, that will allow me to be more real, more honest, more intuitively mm. attuned. Yeah, sometimes I see, you know, how we say, oh, if we reduce the CO2 emissions, then we fix the climate crisis. This is a little bit the same. If all the institutions realize we're all consciousness, then the same mind, the linear mind of cause and effect, and that's how we're going to fix it. Yeah, but what you're saying is that what you're saying is if they're going to realize it, it's going to be through a sort of a a fundamental grassroots change that many, many individuals are realizing it within themselves, and then that will sort of percolate out. Yeah. Yeah. And also there's what Max Planck said, which is that science progresses through a series of funerals. Life progresses through a series of funerals. (laughs) Same for the spiritual community as well yeah you know you've done sand for 10 or 11 years 12 or something i don't know and it it has undergone an evolution during this period and as you said earlier any year could be the last year you, you don't have any long range goals but for all you know you could be doing it 10 years from now still do you have any sense or feeling of how it might look 10 years from now if you are still doing it do you have a sense of the direction in which it is evolving, or is it really impossible to say? No, I don't know. It's funny, some people come to us and they, sell, they try to say, well, we should have, a, I can help you. And you're like, okay, okay, give us a, a, a three to five year business plan. And we look at them. <laughs> we come, we put stickers, stickers everywhere, the house, we, we bring three days brainstorm. And then we walk in and we look at it. Like, no, let's take all this down. We have no idea. No idea. That's, uh, that's the only way. Well, let's yeah. shorten the site a little bit. I mean, what would you like to see happen next year that hasn't happened yet? More inclusivity. More diversity. More diversity and more what we're trying to break away a little bit from that speaker audience dynamic mm-hmm. and become more of a exchange, create more spaces of more exchange, of, of participation, of inquiry. So that's really what we want to see this this year, less 20 minutes talks one after another that we don't have time to reflect or digest, a little bit less of the TED-like moods and more, okay, let's take a moment here to be with what's been delivered, just to contemplate, to let it in, or to have a conversation around that. We're exploring different formats. And if I can talk really from the top of our head as the conversation happened, maybe sand needs to be smaller. A thousand people, it's insane. Because in a thousand people, we cannot get that intimacy. Maybe there will be three sands over the year in three different parts of the planet or of the country or whatever, or in the same place. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We know more than 250 people like we yeah. do in Italy. 
Maybe not. less is actually Maybe better. Maybe less, less is better. Like our event in Italy, it's 250 people that stay together for six days. And it really builds intimacy and we go deeper in the conversations and the experiences. It's a possibility. At the end of the day, we are a community. We just, for some reason, we have somehow we get a responsibility in this community to channel something through us and that is happening, which is called sand. But we really are a game of response with you and with everybody else in the community. When we talk about having the polls, we don't have any polls. It's simply that the polls pulsate through us and, and somehow it comes... We are not getting in the way as much as we can. We try not to get in the way of what needs to happen. And it feels like sense is changing, definitely. Mm-hmm. Sand is changing. Where is it going? I have no idea. Well, I felt like it's changed quite a bit over the years. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed the direction in which it's going. And there are certain things which were there even when I first went that I still enjoy. But there was more participation by teachers who were saying the world is an illusion than there is now, which is good. <laughs> My dream is to see teachers being even more human than, you know, less projecting that kind of a perfect human being, perfect realized being image and being more real and more humble and more intimate with their own shadow because we all have it. And actually that's freeing for the students, for those who listen when a human being is there and saying, no, I haven't figured it all out. I still have places that I'm growing and learning and maybe I have things that I don't even see. Then I think we are creating a field of trust and deeper listening, not just projecting. That's my dream to see more and more of that. I seem to see that teachers who do that, people are more and more attracted to them and that they, you know, they like them. And often those teachers are teaching in smaller venues, whereas people who are still trying to project some kind of a ideal illusion about who, who they are, some of them are quite popular, but they often get into trouble because you can only keep that up for so long. You can hide your shadow as much as you can. And why? 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 So it doesn't... Comes out. It doesn't take away from your brilliance, right? From our brilliance, we hold both. The contradiction and the clarity, the the light and the darkness, that's life. You can't take it out, the perfection and imperfection, all of it. Shadow is an interesting thing, or or sort of self-delusion one can get into is an interesting thing. I was reading a conversation the other day between Andrew Cohen and another teacher, and it was before Andrew Cohen went through his big downfall or whatever you want to call it. And the other teacher was saying, well, you know, how about your shadow? And and Cohen didn't even know what he was talking about. And these days, Andrew looks back at that and he's trying to make amends and he's going to Mother Teresa's place and working with the the poor and doing all kinds of stuff. And he said, I can't believe I was so blind to the way I was behaving. So isn't it strange the way one can be so blinded by one's... Aren't we all? We still are all in that place. But I mean, isn't it yeah. beautiful that just that act of listening, what he's, is like opens my heart. I feel, yeah. He's the most contrite I know of, of teachers who have screwed up in some way and then are trying to make amends. 
He physically traveled to meet face-to-face with as many people as possible who would be willing to meet with him whom he had, had wronged. And he went to Peru and did ayahuasca and he's done therapy and he's driven an Uber in order to support himself and all kinds of things like that. It's laudable. And there are many people who will never forgive him and don't want him to ever show his face again <laughs> anywhere. But I admire the, the effort at least. Yeah, yeah. of yeah. course. We got a Uber and have Andrew. It would be so nice to meet him again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've really enjoyed spending a little time with you. And and this has been um, obviously just a sampling of what we might have discussed. Another conversation might have covered very different points, but hopefully has given people a a glimpse of who you are if they haven't met you before. And the, the sand conference itself is sort of a reflection of who you are, I think. There's intellectual clarity and there's humor and there's a little bit of self-deprecation <laughs> and diversity of perspectives that you're able to comfortably adapt to, regardless of how diverse they are. So I think it's you know it's a beautiful project, and um, you know I think it has inspired a lot of people. And I hope I do hope you do keep doing it for a long time to come, as long as you feel like it. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. And you've been an integral part of Absolutely. that that community and this process and we learn by getting feedback and you have been one of the avid voices of the community that is like oh oh, look at this and I really really love and appreciate that because sometimes we all can get lost in our own world and not see things. Robert Burns there's some poem you know would some god the gift he give us to see ourselves as others see us. Yeah we're mirrors of each other and may we become more honest to fully see ourselves and allow others to mirror us back in the places we don't see. Nice. Okay, well, thank you very much. Oh, and in terms of upcoming events and all, so we've been alluding to sand, and there's two of them, the two main ones. There's the one in Italy. When is that one? July 13 to the 20th in an incredibly awesome castle in Umbria, two hours north of Rome and to our south of Florence, in the center of Italy, six days, 13 to the 20. And right after that, we have another retreat with Gabor Mate and Betsy Polatin about trauma from the 20 to the 24 in the same place. So you can stay. And in Italy, bring the kids, bring the family. It's a total family-oriented event. It's beautiful. It's really like the old the utopian community that you have dreamed of if you're in this conversation, because you will have toddlers and, and teenagers and people running around the piazza. It's and insane. now we have conversations. We have a lot oh more time God, to hang so out beautiful. and talk. Yeah. Yeah. You can even event. stay in a tent there, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 if yeah. You need if to. You Food is incredible. All you can eat is party at night, music, dance, art. And then we have the Italian October. event in October. The US event, which is like the jam, the the the, the mothership, the mother, yeah. the mothership, yeah. <laughs> and that's in late October in San Jose, California, and all of this is in is detailed on this your website, which is scienceandnonduality.com, right? Correct. Or if you just search for Science and Non-Duality Conference in Google, you'll see it. And I'll link to it from your page on BatGap. And also there are various, it seems like every month or so you have a webinar of some kind with somebody that people can do from wherever they are webinars and we also invite people to propose us uh, talks or experiences it sends so we have something called abstract systems so anyone who feels inspired to contribute 
we welcome proposals. Yes. And the movie will come out very soon, The Wisdom of Trauma. We are in the final editing. This movie that will be really, it's an amazing movie. It's a feature-length documentary. And Where will people became, be able to see that? Well, it depends uh, which kind of leg the baby is going to grow. Probably we'll do the festival route first or go straight to Netflix or go to Amazon. It's, the, the, it's, so, it's impossible to know at this time. It's impossible to know. I will definitely see it. If not, it's going to be on YouTube free for everybody. Good. And just like we all our movie at the end, we'll put them there. Huh. Uh, I don't know if so, it's relevant to ask how you finance something like that, but I guess maybe you have the Fetzer Institute or whatever people have been. No, not, not the Fetzer. Fetzer is helping us in other ways, very small ways. A uh, private donor. A pri- we have a private donor that gave us funds to make this movie. And being filmmaker all our life, we are able to make movies way, way below budget. We are the same yeah. strength we use for sand to be able to stay alive with sand. We stay alive by making an amazing movie at below a fraction of the cost. Yeah. You have so, a yeah, free camera that. lady. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm still dating her. Because she's, <laughs> she's also an editor and a producer. She's incredible and gorgeous. So what else can I ask for? You got it. <laughs> yeah. All right, thanks. So uh, to those who have been listening or watching, uh, obviously I've been speaking with Zion Maurizio Bonazzo. You know who they are pretty well by this time. This is part of an ongoing series of interviews. As I said in the beginning, there have been over 500 of them and there'll be many more. So go to batgap.com, check out the menus, sign up for the email notification if you want to. There's audio podcasts, you can sign up if you want to, and so on. And there's also an upcoming interviews page where you will see who we've got scheduled in the coming weeks. I think next week is Claire Dubois, who um, has an organization called Tree Sisters. Talk about something a little bit outside my usual comfort zone. This is going to be a little different. I'm going to somehow fit it into the Bat Gap universe, but we'll manage. So thanks, guys. Thank you, thank Rick. You, Rick. Thank you for your work. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. See you in October for sure. See you in October. And we'll Unless you be come in, in Italy in July. Uh, I don't think so. See you in October. Okay, Unless we're all you. dead by then. <laughs> then we'll see you somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you somewhere else. We'll be there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Thank Ciao. you very much. Ciao. Thank you. Ciao, Rick. Bye. Rick. Ciao, ciao. Bye.